This morning we're reading John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, wait, we have one more. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. That was awesome. All right, guys. Two weeks into 2024. How many of you are still holding strong with your uh, resolutions? Oh, okay. A couple of you. Well done. Yeah. Very good. Not me. Not me. Within like eight hours of my resolutions, I'm like, nope, this was a dumb idea. I'm breaking it right now so I can enjoy my year. Well, as always... uh, Would you join me here now in just kind of getting present to the teaching of God's word and the ideas that he might implant in your hearts and minds and souls uh, as we've begun our journey into this theme of looking away to look toward. Uh, If you would, just sort of get present now to your body and to the the room around you. You can close your eyes. And as we settle, just feel the weight of your body pressing down into uh, the chair. And the reason we do that is Christianity is not just a brain endeavor. It's a whole heart, mind, and body reality. We are embodied souls. And so to be present, we bring into this room all of our conversations, flavor of coffee and donut on and in our mouths, the sound of life all around us, a city moving and and waking up to a Sunday morning. And our past week, Lord, whatever has been brought into our lives, for some great blessing, for others burdens as the new year is upon us, and a future over which we have no control. And so here with a a breath into our body, please just breathe in now. With that breath, we're present to each other in this room, present to our God in prayer, aware. And I would just invite you, and the Spirit would invite you to For this moment, even just for the next five, ten minutes, as best you can, he's fully aware of every hurt, every anxiety, every fear, every point of shame, every blessing, every desire, every dream, all of it. He is so present with us now. Cast your care upon him because he cares for you. And I would invite you now with your body and your mind and your heart and your soul, your whole being, open yourself to the God who made you. Just open yourself to him. Just invite him. Come and speak to me, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to me, King Jesus. Father, maker, creator, you who formed and fashioned me, speak to me today and guide me and direct me with this family around me. We together, the family of God, united with the family of God throughout the globe, breathing in deeply, Ruach, spirit, trusting, giving ourselves to you, May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, may you send us into this world this week to love and to care for, not to condemn. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Well, we are beginning second week today, a year-long journey, deeply, deeply meditating on this theme of look away, look towards. So for us as a local community of faith, this year is a year of preparation for us. We are convinced that at least, at the very least, we are one day closer than we were yesterday to the return of Jesus Christ. 
if anything, we're preparing for his presence. We want to be available to his guidance and his power. And so this for us is a year of deep introspection, and it's a year of radical reorientation of our attention. Radical reorientation of our attention away from the things that corrupt us, from the things that compromise our souls. And we want to focus this entire year on the things of the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ that he has for each one of us. So through January this month, we're dialing in on the particular theme or on the particular topic of the world. Look away from the world. Look toward the kingdom of God. In February, we're going to spend the entire month looking away from the flesh and looking toward the Holy Spirit, the patterns of the flesh towards the Holy Spirit and his power and his wisdom. And just to kind of seed where we're going in February, our practice for February, which we do nine of over four years at this church, our third practice that we're going to engage with through the month of February is fasting. So we'll be doing teaching on fasting, fasting from food. But I want to invite the entire community for the season of Lent, which begins around mid-February, to enter with us into a digital fast turning our phones into dumb phones, meaning no email, no Instagram, no TikTok, no Snapchat, no Twitter, formerly known as X now. All of the things that distract, we want to move away from purposefully for the season of Lent. It's just an invitation, no pressure. If you feel a little anxiety rising in your body, you better pay attention to that. There's a reason for that. It's called addiction, and we need, we need to be set free from it. So for both Jesus followers, back to the world, for our topic at hand through January, for both those of you in here that follow Jesus currently and you're considering Jesus, you're trying to figure out this church thing, maybe you're spiritual and just kind of about on the journey right now, welcome, welcome to you. But for anyone who is, whether you're following Jesus or not, whenever we bring up the term the world, the world is a multifaceted, multi-layered idea. So for example, When we say the world, that can mean planet Earth, that can mean the world of our social and relational, political and vocational structures and contexts. When we say the world, we could be referring to our interior world, our psyche, our thoughts, our emotions. We have the worlds of examination, and we have the worlds of recreation. We have the world of sports, the world of science, the world of insects, the world of art, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On and on and on it goes. This multi-layered, multifaceted terminology. The world refers to an intertwined, multi-layered, physical and spiritual reality. And the world to which we refer as humanity is formed by the various facets of existence and experience. It's all interwoven into this beautiful thing that we call the world. Now, the Bible is a very sophisticated piece of literature. It's actually a library of books. And it acknowledges through the meta narrative, through the stories and the teachings and the commands and the laws and the wisdom and the poetry, the Bible acknowledges this definitional complexity of the world as much as we recognize it as moderns. Biblical passages use the term the world in every conceivable way that you and I would throughout the meta narrative from Genesis to Revelation. So, for the sake of simplicity, for our purposes this morning, all we want to do for this session is give a broad overview of what the Bible says the world is. And we're going to break that definition down into four overlapping and intertwined categories. The physical world, 
the human world, the moral world, and the future world. These four intertwined, overlapping, complex categories the Bible alludes to or explicitly speaks to, the physical world, the human world, the moral world, and the future world. Now, obviously, some explanations are in order for us this morning, some descriptions and definitions. Let's start with the physical world. The physical world. The Bible talks a lot about the physical world. When the Bible talks about the physical world, it includes the entirety of the universe, or we now possibly know multiple universes, the cosmos, and all of creation. And here's the thing about the Bible and the Bible's worldview on the world as a physical reality. When the Bible refers to the world, the cosmos, the universes, it includes the metaphysical created world of angels and demons, heaven and hell that we cannot see. When the Bible talks about the world and creation, it includes all of this unseen realm in and part of, intertwined with this thing that we experience as empirical, measurable, testable, redo, all those things, okay? Everybody tracking with that? So when the biblical authors refer to the universe, they often use expressions like the heavens and the earth. This is what we call in the, in the technical language is a mirrorism. It's a combination of two contrasting or two poles of ideas, the heaven and the earth. When the Bible uses the idea of the heaven and the earth, it includes everything that has ever been, ever will be, that was created by God. That is shorthand for everything and anything. Now, when biblical authors refer specifically to the world, not using heaven and earth, but to the world, they usually begin to dial it in a little bit, and they're referring to the land upon which we live, the earth itself, the land upon which humans exist. And the ancients had a very different concept for what that land actually was compared to you and I, who have been to the moon and seen the pictures of a round globe. They thought of this earth very differently than we do. Entirely different sermon session, entirely different sermon series. It'll be fun. We'll do it some days. Uh, God created the physical world, the universe, solar systems, stars, planets, earth, and all of it, the Bible tells us, is full of his glory. Glory is an old Bible word that just means weightiness, beauty, fame, power. When we look out on the stars and the skies, the lands and the seas, what we see is infinite majesty and wisdom and power and goodness and beauty and curiosity and creativity. The physical world expresses all of that in its expansiveness. God designed the physical world, in particular, the land upon which humans live, earth, to be cultivated. This world, this earth, this land, these seas, it is laden with possibility. And God intended humans to tend for this physical world and to care for this world in partnership with him. Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says that this physical world in which we live, in its current state, is corrupted because of our corruption and because of our lack of care for it. So whether you're on the sort of... Uh, uh, on the conservative side of biblical interpretation and understanding, which we are, then corruption, our corruption, has corrupted the world. If you find yourself uh, uh, listening in, keying in, maybe it's not progressive, but you are sympathetic to the care for the earth, the global warming, all that stuff. The corruption of the earth, which we are that too, by the way. We tend to sit right in the middle in a third way on almost everything here at Neighbors. What you find is that the world is corrupted because of us and our sin, the Bible says so, and it's also corrupted because we're not caring for it the way that we're supposed to. The Bible says so. Does that make sense? For the creation of the world, St. Paul says to the Roman church, the creation of the world was subjected to frustration, 
not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Part of what the kingdom of God will be is us caring for creation perfectly, finally, not selfishly, not robbing it and destroying it. This physical world is awaiting redemption and liberation from decay and death, just like you and I are. The Bible promises a future physical world where all wrong will have been made completely right and where all of creation will live in perfect harmony with itself, with each other, and with God. Pictures like lions laying down with lambs, little toddlers playing by the den of vipers and nobody is harmed, uh, wild predators eating straw for meals instead of eating other animals. It's this beautiful harmony where creation now exists in the presence of God. The connective tissue between humans and the physical earth in the biblical narrative is very robust, very robust. Therefore, the human world, our second category the Bible gives us, the physical world, the human world includes the inhabited earth where we live, and by extension, the human world is the people who live here. That's us. All at this point, 8.1 billion of us. We're just adding to those numbers even this weekend here at Neighbors Church. I think that we're probably like responsible for 0.1 of the billion at this point, <laughs> the rate we're going. The human world, now here we're going to get into some really technical language here. So uh, class, lean in, get your pencils out, let's take notes. The world comprises, the human world comprises all the social and relational uh, the political and the philosophical, all the economic systems that organize human behavior and belief. The human world, when the Bible talks about the human world, it is all of these systems, whether it be empires or industry, organizations, whether it be institutions, all of these things, economies, all of these things, philosophies that organize human belief and behavior comprise what the Bible is referring to when the Bible refers to the world. It was this human world, all of its systems, all of its organization, all of its institutions that is broken. And it was this human world of systems and power and oppression and pleasure at cost to another and wealth hoarded instead of shared. It was this world that Jesus warned his people, we might gain it, we might gain it. The power, the pleasure, the wealth, the security, the position, we might gain it and in the process lose our very souls. Jesus warned about this world. It was this human world that Satan offered Jesus in the temptation scenes in Matthew chapter 4 when he said to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you all the economies. I'll give you all the philosophies. I'll give you all the power structures. I'll give you all the political position. I will give it all to you, Satan said to Jesus. If only Jesus would bow down and behave and, belay, be, behave and believe like the world of the kingdoms of men bow down and worship Satan instead of the true and living God. The human world and its systems, because of our corruption and pollution due to sin, the systems are corrupted and polluted by sin. And this is where things get a little bit one layer deeper. Because Adam and Eve, as we talked about last week, the first human progenitors of our, of our being, because they yielded their authority to the serpent in the garden, this world and the human world, its philosophies and economies and institutions and organizations, 
is under the authority of malevolent spiritual forces at this time. Remember, when the Bible talks about the world, it includes angels and demons, all this unseen realm. So Paul would put it this way to the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, pollution, corruption, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the economies of this world, the philosophies of this world, organizations, institutions, ideologies of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's shorthand for the serpent in the garden, the Leviathan of the Old Testament, the behemoth, chaos monster, all of these allusions to this malevolent spiritual force, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Jesus calls this ruler of the air in John chapter 12 the prince of this world, the authority of these human worlds. Now, the Bible is unwincing and unapologetic in that it speaks about powers and principalities and rulers and kingdoms and empires and philosophies and economies, and it speaks about them and it speaks to them from both a physical, measurable perspective that we can see and watch and write about and read about, but also from this metaphysical perspective. From the Bible's perspective, behind the kingdoms and the empires and the systems that oppress and the systems of racism and the systems of sexism is a malevolent spiritual world that is motivating these broken works of individual humans that then put us into a big system together and we become like an echo chamber of just a snowball rolling away of oppression, sexism, racism, all the isms that we do one unto another. Now, at least for me, this idea of a malevolent spiritual force behind the empires, behind the organization and philosophies of the world, at least for me, this finally, has given me some explanation to the suffering and the atrocities that we see in the human experience. From nuclear bombs to gas chambers to school shootings and the sex trade of children, there is for me finally an explanation to some degree that there is something terribly, terribly, terribly malformed and evil at work in the unseen realms, but manifesting through this human world in its systems. Now, stay with me, class. Dense, I realize. This does not mean that there is no good in the human world whatsoever and in the human world's systems whatsoever. Recognize, we cannot function and flourish as a society without economies, without organizations, without institutions, without social conventions that teach us rules and manners, without political legislations that give us laws to abide by, to you know, enforce moral structures. We cannot exist as a society without some sort of shared convictions at some level. Theologians and Christian thinkers have long recognized what they call common grace, common grace. And so what that is, is in the midst of all the pollution, all the corruption within these systems, God is still laboring to cultivate, to do his work in partnership and accomplish his will, even through rebellious humans. In other words, the systems of the human world because they are built by image bearers, that means both believers and unbelievers, then God's common purpose of the cultivation of the earth and industry and beauty and art through human beings, he is still manifesting that in every single collective human endeavor in some measure, in a corrupted measure, in a polluted measure. 
The problem is, due to the corruption within us and the rebellion within us, eventually the piling up of all these individuals into a system, the system begins to take over and the system begins to overreach. It becomes this mindless entity in and of itself that exerts power and authority in harmful and destructive and evil ways. These systems become mindless engines, further polluting God's purposes. And these systems conscript human individuals who are unaware of or unconscious of how the system is disregarding or denying God. Uh, I just recently finished a book called Scandalous Witness by a guy named Lee Camp. Fantastic book. A great read for as we approach this 2024 political cycle for you readers. Uh, Scandalous Witness, Lee Camp. All that is good and beautiful gets co-opted at best and corrupted at worst into the ploys of the dominions. Thus, the human practices made for good become corrupting and controlling. Here's what Camp is saying. Every system of the world, be that political, economic, conservative, liberal, religious, or irreligious, no matter how good it may start, don't let this be hopeless, but just hear this, no matter how much justice it may seek to accomplish in the world, no matter how much it may initially be motivated by good intent, if that system exists and is led and comprised of a community apart from Jesus, apart from radical attention to Jesus' will and way, then eventually that spiritual system is operating under the auspices of the spiritual enemy. Therefore, the human world, apart from Jesus, can only do so much in accomplishing true good. It can do some good. It can move the ball down the court a little ways, but eventually it will, it will fall apart. It can only do so much in accomplishing true good or creating lasting beauty or establishing really healthy, beneficial, and flourishing systems. And this is why, ultimately, the human world denies Jesus Christ his rightful place as ruling king of all things, dismisses his beliefs, and rebels against his behaviors in an unconscious obedience to Satan's lies. Now, because of this, we have the physical world to which humanity is deeply intertwined, we're to care for and tend to. And because of the human world's systems that are in place, the moral world, how we define right and wrong, the moral world according to the Bible, the human moral world is always dangerous, it is always deceived, and it is always ultimately deadly. Do you guys get a sense here at the beginning of the year that there's a very deep line being drawn in the sand? The Christian community exists in a very dif different place than the world does. This looking away this year, friends, it's, it's a radical reorientation. It's a radical looking away from what we've believed to be true and right and good and beautiful to something radically different. The moral or the ethical world of the Bible, when the Bible talks about this, is the collective sort of definitions and prescriptions and instituted policies of right and wrong, good and true, beautiful and ugly, but exercised apart from the rule of Jesus, exercised from, uh, apart from obedience to Jesus. So from the perspective of the Bible, the moral world is actually composed of people that are indifferent or hostile to God. And so beliefs that are opposed to God and behaviors are practiced that are in denial of God's will. And so in the, wild, in the, in the widest sense possible, the moral world, when the Bible talks about the world, the world is this fundamentally, fundamentally rebellious place in the eyes of the Creator. Here's how John put it at the beginning of his gospel. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, 
And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In the name of, as we talked about last week, in the name of defining for ourselves, defining right and wrong, defining for ourselves good, true, and beautiful, apart from God's terms, this was the original taking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the moral world of rebellious humans and fallen human systems rejects and actually rebels and sits in antagonistic warfare with God and his ways. This is the perspective of the Bible. The human and moral world, according to the biblical storyline and prophecy, will continue on this downward spiral of enmity against God until God eventually intervenes and judges. Jesus highlighted this cycle pointing towards coming judgment that he would bring at his second coming. So we read in Matthew some of Jesus' most scary sermons. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man." What we see is what Augustine called a a pattern of biblical cyclical history. So from the beginning, you see humanity corrupting, not partnering with God, and cultivating creation with industry and beauty according to God's standard, which then creates these systems, which are mindless, oppressive systems that take and rob and recruit unintentional individuals into the system's way of thinking. Then that creates all these moral structures that further define right and wrong for self until there is chaos within the society and God brings his judgment. So we have these cycles, Genesis to Genesis chapter 6, this growing corruption and pollution until God says that's enough, and the flood. Then what you see is this cycle, like a skipping record going throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. You see empires rise up and empires get so gnarly and so nasty that God judges them with another empire. It's the rise and fall of these empires throughout history. Some would say that right now, the United States may be one of the most powerful and greatest empires to have ever existed in human history. She looks like she's kind of unraveling at the seams. Are we at the end of Western society? I don't know. Maybe. Could be. There could be a massive revival sparked by this tiny little room right here. (laughs) There could be a revival, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, the presence of a political, economic, gentle, moral kingdom in the midst of all these systems that works like a purifying agent to the pollution. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's stay on track here. The human and moral world, according to the biblical storyline and prophecy, continues in this downward spiral. Jesus alluded to it. We see it through the rise and falls of empires. And Jesus and all of the New Testament authors actually foresaw this continued cycle of corruption and judgment ramping up and intensifying to the very end. We don't know when the very end is. All we know is that John said this in the book of Revelation. Then I saw what? A new physical, spiritual reality that existed. This new heaven and new earth. This is what we're looking forward to. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So this future world is what we look forward to. This new order without death, 
without sin, where God and humans and creation live in harmony. This is what the Bible is looking forward to. This is what we wake up in the morning saying, come Lord Jesus for. We believe that this is a literal, physical, spiritual, cosmic reality that is coming for all of creation at some point. We just don't know when. The future world. And this future world won't be some disembodied angels, you know, flying around with wings and little naked babies and all the stuff that we have left over from medieval paintings. It will be a physical, uh, big term, corporeal, touchable, tangible reality. We will have real bodies just like Jesus. We'll be able to sit around and eat fish together around fires and tell jokes and enjoy each other's company. And at that point, somehow in the mystery of God's economy, all of the cosmos will be in harmony, and we will do what Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, were intended to always do. Go and cultivate this new cosmic physicality and spirituality in partnership with God forever. Heaven will not be boring. We will not be sitting around twiddling on harps for eternity. That would be terrible. You and I will have something to do. And by the way, in this life, you're being prepared for that now. Your sufferings are teaching you to rule and to cultivate the future creation like Jesus would. That's what this formation process is all through our lives until he says, time to go, time to do it. That's exciting to me. That gives me hope in the midst of every bit of pain and in every bit of suffering. I am being prepared to come alongside Jesus and cultivate this new creation. So here we find ourselves, let's shift gears, another 10 minutes maybe. Here we find ourselves... This morning, the church, we inhabit these facets of the world collectively. We inhabit this morning the physical world, the cosmos. We inhabit the human world with all of its systems. We inhabit this moral world, and we also, the Bible says, inhabit the future world currently somehow in the mystery of God. We are seated in the heavenlies, and we are the embodiment of this future world. So for the rest of our time this morning, maybe 10 minutes, all I want us to do is meditate on how Jesus, our master, our teacher, our king, how did Jesus and his earliest apprentices interact with this world? And how were they taught to influence this world? How did Jesus think of this world? And how did he teach his followers to live in the world? How do we do this? And as you'll learn if you make neighbors your home, everything about this is very complex. It's not black and white. It's not super easy. There's a ton of gray in between, which is why you need to be in a community group to process these things and work through each of your scenarios as you live in the world and interact with the world and influence the world as God sees fit through community and prayer in the scriptures. Three things that Jesus gave to us. One, we are in the world, but not of it. We are in this world, but we're not of it. Radical reorientation, folks. We have been sent to the world, so we think of ourselves differently in the way that uh, we might have been sent on a mission, and we are to love the world. We are to love the world. Let's start with this mysterious teaching that as followers of Jesus, we are indeed part of this world. We inhabit the physical, human, moral, and even the future world of the Bible, but very clearly something has transacted in the eternal realms, in the cosmos, in the metaphysicality of our being, where we are not part of this world. Something about our existence has radically changed. So in one of Jesus' most important prayers for his people, John 17, just prior to his crucifixion, in part of that prayer, he prayed this. I, this is us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
metaphysical, spiritual, moral, human world. Have all those categories in your mind when Jesus says that. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, all of those categories, but that you protect them from the evil one. Notice who's ruling all of those worlds, the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So the mystery and the miracle of the good news of the gospel this morning for each of us is that when Jesus Christ came, embodied in the flesh as God among us, died our death, was buried, and then literally, historically, physically rose from the grave, he in so doing conquered the power of death held by the enemy, held by Satan. He has broken that enemy's grip on us, and he has taken us from the dominion of darkness. Paul put it this way to the Colossian church. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into this future world, the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that you and I have been remade from the inside out. We have become new creations. Now, when we get to flesh, we'll talk about how the patterns and the emotional, psychological sort of reverberations of our past life continue to carry a lot of weight and influence, but the process of formation is this new life beginning to emerge out of us through the practices, through the disciplines, through apprenticeship to Jesus. But through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, we've been remade as new creations, and we now are, as I said, the beginning of the future world. We're a broken, polluted expression of this harmony that is to come into the world, Jesus praying, on earth as it is in heaven in the Our Father. Jesus said because of his word, because of the word of the Father, Christians have an entirely alien set of beliefs and behaviors. The way that we believe and see the world is alien to how the world sees itself. Therefore, the way that we believe and behave is alien to the way that the world believes and behaves. And so these beliefs and behaviors are in accordance with the purpose of God in this harmonious future world that we are now expressing in part. These beliefs and behaviors as relayed by his word. They are the good news of the kingdom that Jesus announced. Jesus came to proclaim and inaugurate and is now breaking in through us. Having accomplished everything necessary to establish his kingdom, he is now drawing people into this family of forgiveness as recreated beings supernaturally. And now he sends us. We are in the world, friends. We are in the moral systems. Tomorrow you're going to go to your workplaces and you're going to be surrounded by the ideologies and the philosophies and the belief systems of a world that is antagonistic towards Jesus. But the Bible says that as we are in it, we are not part of it, and we have been sent to it. You have been commissioned and literally sent into this world. John 17, verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As I said, next week, be sure to come back next week, because it'll be lighter and happier and funner in here. <laughs> the kingdom of God next week is an embodied practical reality in the midst of all of these systems. I'm going to say something controversial just to kind of light the fires. The kingdom of God is extremely political, but not in the way that you think at all. I really want to get out ahead of the ball here in 2024 and teach about a kingdom politic, politics of prayer, politics of humility, politics of gentleness. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, Jesus really does not care. What he cares about is your soul and that you're influencing these conversations in a direction towards the future world. So much more on that next week. It's an economic kingdom. 
It's a moral kingdom. All these things salt, Jesus would say, the salt of the earth. They light the darkness like a city on the hill. For this morning, we who have come to trust and follow Jesus are the intermediaries between heaven and earth. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God called to the mission of rescue and reconciliation. So we, together this week, think of ourselves like medics in a war zone. We don't really have a choice about this. We are in a war zone, and we have been rescued. Therefore, we are now the medics. And we're not medics for, we're going to only help out our Republican friends, and we're not medics for only our Democratic friends. We're not medics for only our conservative friends, or only medics on like the, the liberal team. We are medics for every team. Every team. Who we see going down, who we see injured, harmed, wounded by the world and its systems and its oppressions and its pain, there we sit, rescued from it, sent to it as medics. We exist in this intermediate place between what is now and what will be. So we are practitioners of the truth, not just truth proclaimers, but practitioners of the truth. We exist as healers and heralds and inviters. So the church, I like to say, exists in this culture as both a pastoral comfort, like a comforting presence. We are here to comfort the people of the world, our coworkers, our friends, our family members, through prayer, through presence, through love, through generosity, through humility, through servant-heartedness. But we equally are here as a prophetic critique of the culture around us. The church is responsible for prophetically critiquing the broken systems of the world, the lies and the ideologies and prophetically critiquing, beginning with herself, looking at each other, seeing where are we disregarding the kingdom ethic and the kingdom morality and the kingdom economics in the name of letting the world pollute what the church is. This has been the struggle since the beginning of the church in Pentecost, ongoing. This generation faces some unique, stringent points of tension with the world. And I think God is shaking us and releasing so much in the church towards purity and this radical reorientation of our attention. This existence is in this intermediate state, friends. It is in this already but not yet reality, and it is a war zone. It is a war zone. So Jesus used the language about how the world reacted to him, and thus how the world would react to those who endeavor to become like him and do what he did. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would lo- it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Inbuilt into the believer's life who wants to be like Jesus, be with Jesus, and do what Jesus did is an inbuilt antagonism between that soul and the world. It's just part of the game. It's just sort of what we sign up for. But this is the key, friends. This antagonism does not fight back. When we experience a sense of antagonism from the world around us, or we sense the pressure, which each of you do, I understand the world that you guys live in, the the pressure that you face tomorrow to not be fired from your jobs or not get promoted or lose social face, all the things that you face tomorrow, that antagonism is not going away. If anything, that antagonism, according to biblical history, is probably going to get worse. That's not a doomsday thing. That's just a preparation of God's people. So where do we radically reorient our attention? Onto Jesus. And how did Jesus handle this antagonism? Did he rally the troops and fight? No. He willingly received the wounds of the world in silence. With humility and gentleness, he absorbed the wrong done against him, the misunderstanding of him, the marginalization of him, 
He absorbed that into himself in the name of forgiveness and for the sake of transforming his enemy into his family. That is the level to which we have been sent into the systems of the world tomorrow. And so we as Christians, we work and we live quietly and subversively, as we'll see next week, in our various contexts, working like mustard seeds planted in the soil of our social networks. We operate like the old school language is leaven in the loaf, leaven that's imperceptible, but it raises the loaf of culture through each touch point. Each one of you represent a piece of leaven, a mustard seed, sent specifically into various systems of the world as medics to rescue those who are harmed and hurting and wounded, as comforters and as those who critique with gentleness and humility to raise the loaf up towards this future world. Jesus actually said, because of his crucifixion and this upside-down nature of his kingdom, when he was speaking to a man named Pilate, and Pilate was just basically a puppet of the systems of the world, the Roman Empire in particular. Jesus, Pilate could not get his head around how a king could come and establish his kingdom without political rallying, without a ton of money, without all the position in society, without violence and warfare. Pilate, that's the only way he could operate when it came to kingdom and power. And Jesus stood before him and said this to him. John 18, 36, Jesus said, Pilate, church, remember this year, my kingdom, my politics are not of this world. My economy, my philosophies, my beliefs, my behaviors are not of this world. If They were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Because we exist in a world, in this world, but we are not of it, we don't fight as the world fights. Our warfare strategy, now I'm not trying not to get ahead of myself, but our warfare strategy is not political. Yes, politics are important. They touch on the very heart of how we order the polis, the city, how we design what's right and wrong. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many tributaries of Christianity that have interpreted and applied these ideas of in the world but not of the world in very different ways. The undergirding premise being, though, that it's not in this antagonistic, violent way where we use power like the world uses power, or money like the world uses money, or politics like the world uses politics, or social systems like the world uses social systems. All of these things are used in submission to and obedience to Jesus Christ. So our ethic, our morality, our politics are all rooted in this foundation of self-giving love. Just take a moment right here. Let's get super practical. Tomorrow, think of your coworkers. Think of your classmates. Think of your relationships. And what does it feel like in your body, if there's fear, that's okay, to be sent tomorrow to selflessly love without violence, in the silence, to be a mustard seed in that space? He knows how to prepare you, how to bless you, how to anoint you. You don't have to be afraid. Just be you loving Jesus and let him do what he does. Let sacrificial humility guide you. Care, actual care for the least of these. And then learning actually to absorb into ourselves the wrong that is done because of the certainty of a future world that cannot be taken from us. I fully recognize how many questions this raises around how we do this. Much more on this next week within our community groups. That's why this series and in a church like Neighbors, like if you don't get just one sermon that like sets you up for the week till you get to your next sermon, it layers, this whole year is going to be a gigantic layering of these themes. So I hope you're in with me because I'm in whether you're going to be here or not. (laughs) Why? This is the final piece. Most famous verse ever. Everybody knows this verse. How do we interact with the world? 
For God so loved the world. Love is not just this feely, oobly, goobly thing. Love is you and I tomorrow because Jesus selflessly gave himself for us. Selflessly, humbly, gently, with the love of God going into our systems tomorrow to give ourselves, just as the Son gave himself, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Tomorrow, each of you have been given the respect of wisdom, words, background, and experience to go into your world, and you don't have to have some canned evangelism thing that you share. You might. Sometimes those things are really effective. You don't have to have your five steps on how to get your coworker to come to church with you next week. Those things can be effective. I've never had them work for me. You need to go into the world tomorrow with your coworkers and your friends being loved by God. He came to love you. He came to rescue you. So you show up to work tomorrow morning, and the first thing you remember is, my God loves me. Therefore, whatever comes this day, I have a future world in which I am certain of his love. It will overcome whatever I face today. Whatever the world takes from me or gives to me, it matters not because I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. Therefore, I can love this world with my life. I can lay down my life like Jesus did for the sake of coworker, friend, family member, neighbor, enemy, so that that enemy becomes my family. And we remember as we go through the course of our week this week that he loves us. He loves us because we are the victims. Each of us have been victimized and hurt. And he loves us when we are the perpetrators. That's the hard, cold truth of Christianity is that we perpetrate as much as we victimize. He loves us when we are the lowly and the unseen and the marginalized. He sees us there. And he also sees us, and this is American affluent culture, where we are the high and lofty. We do have the power. We do have the position. He loves us as the pressed down ones, and he loves us when we are the oppressors. Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection, teaches us that God loves us infinitely, and he has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He has absorbed all of our wrong and delivered us from these domains of darkness, from the deception of the enemy. He's given us the truth of his word. He's given us the truth of his way revealed in the scriptures and through this expansive cosmos. And so we are sent with that empowerment to go love the world. And his love, as we are loved tomorrow morning, creates a compassion in our heart towards us and towards our own blind spots. God loves this trapped, merciless world, and he wants to give it mercy. He is working to rescue every single person that we come into contact with, starting with us. If this, if this little session of being sent overwhelms you, then just sit and say, even if I do nothing, I am loved infinitely. And see how that stirs your heart emotionally. See how that stirs your heart to do what we've been sent to do. So love for the world, as people who exist in it but are not part of it, this is what will govern every decision and every action. We have this overlay now of like a big, gigantic biblical concept of here's what the world is. Next week, we're going to get into what exactly is the kingdom, how does the kingdom operate, and then the fourth week, Aaron will take us through a very specific, like, here's a, like a how-to, a biblical verse-by-verse how-to. The Bible says we've been given everything to turn from, therefore put all of your effort into. All that makes sense? As we come to communion this morning, here's what I'd like you to do. Number one, 
Ask the Holy Spirit, as songs are being sung, as we prepare for communion, ask the Holy Spirit to just gently, and he's always gentle. If, if you're hearing a condemning voice, or you failed, or, or you're never going to be a good Christian, those are lies from the religious world of the enemy. That's the religious system. That's the mantra and the messages of the enemy. Ask the Spirit to gently reveal where maybe the systems or the standards of the world have been corrupting the kingdom of God and the new creation that God has made you in your circle of relationships. He'll show you. He'll, be so gent- He'll give you one little thing, and you can just meditate on that. Number two, as he reveals those things and we come to communion, look to the cross and the resurrection. Don't try to fix this. Okay, I'm going to get it right this week. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to do everything that I need to do. I've been sent. I'm a missionary. That's awesome. That's, that's great zeal. But you may be relying a little bit much on the flesh and not even realizing it, as we'll get to in February. Look away from trying to, fin- to fix or manipulate or control others or convince others of God and his love or of your own worth. Just look to Jesus on the cross who was sent for you and allow him to send you as he sees fit. And then third, ask. Let's ask. How might you this week, Lord, send me as a, as a little Jesus? as an intermediary between heaven and earth to bear witness to the wounds of this world for its salvation. Just ask. Let's just start asking this year, how might I look away from and look towards and then be sent and asking for those open doors of opportunity that God would just be able to work his work, his leaven in the loaf, plant the mustard seeds in every circle of influence that each of you represent respectively. You are the pastors of this city. It's the only way I can say it. You are the prophets called to comfort and to critique humanity. You've been chosen. You, you've been chosen to be loved unconditionally with a fiery Father's love that never ceases in infinite mercy to be loved. But, as John Piper used to say all the time, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life trying to stamp Jesus' name onto worldly endeavors and worldly pursuits. Don't just turn. Look away today. One step further, a little less vision of the world and a little more of the kingdom to come. And let him just scare you a little bit with how radically he wants to reshape you. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Father, as we sing to you now and come to communion, we ask for holy mercy. We ask, God, that these words, your words, the teachings of Jesus Christ would go so deeply into our souls. And I pray this morning for a deep comfort to come over your people. Comfort, comfort my people. Lord, as the world ramps up in antagonism and wars and plague and oppression and deception, I pray again for God's people over and over and over. A humble, broken prayer. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we only want to obey you. Thank you for such infinite forgiveness for us where we have allowed the world to pollute and to misdirect and to deceive. Thank you that you shepherd us. You're the good shepherd. You lead us not astray, but you lead us to green pastures and to still waters. And thank you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness. There is not a mind or a soul in here that you have not completely and sufficiently done everything necessary for to welcome them into the kingdom of God. May we today just close our morning in worship and thanksgiving. May it produce in us hearts of radical humility and deep generosity. Strengthen your people, Father, in these last days to 
to truly be the church, to exist in this world but not be part of it. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. And I thank you that in Jesus Christ, all these prayers are yes and amen as you see fit. Amen. Let's all stand.